Today's show brought to you in part by our friends at LRF Cares. Special contest this weekend, $600 to play. You can play live at Del Mar or you can play on TVG.com. And like with our horse player happy hour shows, money, the VIG, the house cut as it were, goes to charity as well as funding a prize pool that includes a $10,000 BCBC entry, two NHC seats, and seats to the Pacific Classic Betting Challenge and cash. It's a great cause. It's a $600 price point. You're going to want to check this out in themoneypodcast.com slash LRF. That link to sign up in themoneypodcast.com slash LRF. And you'll be hearing more about this later in the show. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Adelphi Racing Club. Got to sit in the stretch box with uh, Matt Cotter on Friday. What a great spot they have there and what a great vibe it is between all those partners. It really is a racing club of like-minded people, unlike any other partnership that I know about. I can't recommend getting involved with the Delphi Racing Club enough. I really have a great time being a member and am excited to see what happens next with the team. For more information, you can go to AdelphiRacing.com. You can send an email to Matt, Matt at AdelphiRacing.com. If you're serious about getting involved and want to enjoy a race or two in their box or maybe even go out in the morning, Matt is the guy to reach out to. Real good energy with that one. Matt at AdelphiRacing.com. You can also follow on social. On Insta, it's Adelphi underscore racing. And on Twitter, it's at Adelphi Club. Welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show. We're recording on Tuesday, August 2nd, reflecting back on the races of last weekend. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you at the little house on the east side in Saratoga Springs and joined by a man coming to us from the planet Texas. Not the man that I usually use that uh, particular sobriquet for. He's just on the other side of Saratoga here, presumably sleeping in. Instead, we pull in from InTheMoneyPodcast.com, Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are things? I'm doing great, Pete. Glad to be with you, recapping some of the the action going on. We're th- right in the thick of the meat, and it's getting a lot of fun. This coming weekend, one of my favorites, we've got the Whitney coming up, and despite my um, gentle trolling of Jonathan, I'm sure we'll be uh, doing our best to pull him in for that coverage. In truth, I think he's making a, a quick up and back to the to Planet Texas and, and probably going to be arriving back in Saratoga, hopefully with bells on and, and ready to work and look at some of these races for us and on Fox this coming weekend. But yeah, it's going to be stakes, action galore. We've got another hot looking week here, but yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later in the week, still finalizing plans for who's going to be doing what for us. But I say we look back at this past weekend at Saratoga and let's start with the general state of the track. I know you made a comment on Twitter about thinking that the the rail wasn't necessarily the place to be. Were you thinking that for the whole weekend or just Sunday's card in particular? When did you notice this? Uh, I actually, I, I would need to do more work on Saturday's card to be sure. Obviously, just speaking of it in general, if you if you do think the rail was bad on Saturday, then you probably want to upgrade a horse like Tawny Port from the Jim Dandy, which we'll talk about when we talk about the, the Jim Dandy a little bit more. But I know I noticed I noticed when uh, Unique Unions won the fourth that I thought, man, this race just had a really decided outside flow. And I had bet tweaked in the third and she was never really on the rail. She was close to the inside. 
She's also a horse that was probably a little bit lesser than the horses that finished in front of her. But anybody that was inside in that race just swam, which included the post-time favorite. And then there was a Belmont first-time starter in the sixth that looked like she was going to angle to the inside and make a, make a move uh, in the wake of Prank, who we'll talk about later as well. And she just stopped running as well. So I think that I think it's a day where you want to you want to keep an eye on anybody that was inside. You might, you know, these are tricky. Dead rails are tricky because when you have a gold rail, you want to downgrade anybody that was inside and you want to upgrade anybody that was outside. When you have a dead rail, you don't necessarily want to downgrade everybody that was outside because in that case, almost everybody was outside. So, you know, there there wasn't, you have to be careful about that part of it. But I do think it was, I think there was a disadvantage to being stuck inside. And, and I think some of the horses that I laid out on Twitter are the ones that I'd be looking forward to betting back. Let's be clear is the one that, that comes to mind uh, first, having uh, really spent the majority of her race on the rail. I think she was hurt by that. And we don't have to go through all those runners. We'll tell you to, to follow at NTAM with two M's, 1215 on Twitter. You can get that that whole list of horses Nick was thinking to bet back from Sunday. And you mentioned that it was there was some interesting debate going on. I haven't had a chance to read through and catch the whole thing. But, but people looking at bias in different ways, which is no surprise because it's one of the more complicated issues in, in, in all of racing. What do you feel like you got out of that conversation on, on Twitter? What, what, how did it change your perspective, if not about the bias itself, about the way that people look at bias? Well, a couple of people contacted me. Um, I mean, Andy Serling said immediately, what about the first winner? And I said, you know, the first winner was really only on the rail from deep stretch home. And I do think there's an argument that the first race lives in isolation, given that not only was it very fast, but it also took place, you know, clearly at a different time relative to the rest of the dirt races. So, for example, I mean, Truancy, that won the first, got a 79 fig and for going seven furlongs. Trade Secret in the third got a 63. That's consistent with what, generally, that's consistent with what they've done in the past. The third was very slow. And then if you apply the same variant to the fourth, that came up a really slow race too. So my belief is that they probably projected the race upwards and then you had more or less the same track speed the rest of the day, which also gave Gunite and Accretive a 101. We'll talk about that race a little bit later. So I do think there's a chance that you just put the first on an island and not really address it as far as what may have happened track profile-wise for the rest of the day. David Aragona said he didn't think it was a, a bad inside and and so... You know, he took a different opinion. I, I joked with one guy who replied to me and said that that he was he's in the club of the center against erroneous bias. And so I said to him, isn't it incredibly ironic to refer to something as erroneous that is by nature entirely subjective? <laughs> so it, it, was, it was sort of like being, you know, it would like be telling him telling me that that I was a violator of his center for erroneous Jesus worshipers because I'm Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's just not something it's I choose to believe that the rail was bad on Sunday. So I will play accordingly. And I encourage anybody who thinks differently to do that. And quite honestly, I encourage them to do it with a bit more fervor than they normally would, because amazingly, a couple of people might listen to what I have to say. And that might just increase your value. It's, we'll see how it plays out. That's the thing with bias. You 
the, the best indicator of if you're right or wrong. And it doesn't really definitively prove it. Sometimes it can. Depends how many data points there are. But when these horses start to run back, and that's why you keep a watch list, whether you do that over at Equibase or, or, or DRF, and you see when these horses come back and you see your note. And, and then, you know, if they run considerably, if the horses that you had that you feel were negatively affected by the bias are all running better and the horses you feel like maybe were with the grain of the track are running the same or, or a little bit worse, then, then you have a data point to maybe make those kind of objective truth comments. But yeah, at this stage, something to pay attention to. And it's also just very hard with the modern racetrack because you will see days where just that very inside, the one path, maybe the one and a half path are bad, but you'll still see a lot of tracks where that's the case, where speed is still good. It's not, it's not as simple as correlating bad rail means good day for closers, good rail means all speed. It's, it's more complicated the way they maintain the modern racetrack. I'm sure that's a phenomenon you've noticed as well. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think it's one of those where there were, there was a, gosh, I guess it was the fall. I mean, it's a while now. I'm almost dating myself. But the fall of 2013 at Belmont, the first month of that meet, there was a huge inside bias. Day in and day out, it was uh, it was so pronounced. And so what what was difficult for people to understand on some days, and the reason why they argued was that it wasn't necessarily a speed bias. It was just a good rail. And so it was hard for some people to wrap their heads around the idea that a horse could sit on the rail the entire way pop outside at the at the quarter pole and had really taken advantage of the bias. Now, they hadn't taken advantage of the bias like a horse that had set the pace and sat on the rail the entire way. But it, it was one of those where the rail was so good that you wanted to be on it for as long as you possibly could. And, and you know, one of the biases from last summer that comes to mind is the rail on the turf. And I hope we don't have a similar situation next week when the rail comes down on the inner turf and and we're at zero and the inside paths are, are just gold. The good thing is we're going from 18 down to zero. So that leaves a lot of room for, for horses to still be outside and be successful. But last year's inner turf course was just a, it was a, a conveyor belt on the inside. And, and there were a ton of betbacks. I mean, the one that comes to mind that I bring up most frequently is wow, who ended up winning her next start at Belmont at 34 to one, who had had a wide trip right. at, at Saratoga the race before. So, you know, that's how you want to do it. You want to, you want to be objective about how you view the horses in their next starts, but you also want to have it in mind. And just like with trip handicapping, any kind of trip handicapping, when you're talking about bias stuff, just because you have a horse as an upgrade or, or a downgrade to some degree or another doesn't mean they're an automatic bet. If they end up being way over their head in the next start, that's not going to matter. If there's some, they're on the wrong surface, it's not going to matter. It's just one factor that you look at. I, I don't think, you know, when we talk about these horses as, as potential bet backs, there's, there's nothing um, reflexive about it. You're going to have to look at the race and see how they fit that day's flow and, and what's going on there. I mean, do, do you agree with that? Yes, I totally agree with that. I think you've, you have to treat every race as an individual event from a handicapping standpoint and not use, I mean, basically not bias yourself, um, pun intended, but also, uh, yeah, objectively analyze it. And if you can apply something that was deduced from uh, a, a track profile analysis, then that's great. And it should give you a little bit more confidence when you're betting. Let's talk about some of the specifics of racing from last weekend, and we'll start with a horse that got a lot of attention, the winner of the Curlin Stakes, Artorius, this son of Arrogate, who was, this is one of these interesting races, Nick, we've talked about before. Very visually impressive to the point where 
I heard an observer near me say, oh, well, that's going to be Chad Brown's Travers winner. But the clock comes back. I haven't looked at the time form, but on Bayer, it comes back just as a 95. Curious to get your thoughts on 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 Ortorius and where you stand with him. Yeah, you know, it was one of the better versions of the Curlin, which, you know, isn't necessarily a ringing endorsement of the race. I think he ran well. You know, I, I don't think there's any argument that he he performed well. Um, this race is in many ways a glorified one other than. It was a little bit better than that because Creative Minister is a bit better horse than, than the average one that we see in there. I, I do think that, unfortunately, Creative Minister is probably on the, the downward slide. But... Um, but I thought he ran well. I thought he handled the extra distance without much of an issue, which was encouraging to see. He is, of course, a son of Arrogate. He got a 115 time from U.S. number uh, for what it's worth. It was a, a, an even pace around there. No no adjustments, uh, significant adjustments. Right in line with the buyer. Exactly right. So um, he is a son of Arrogate out of Paula Silver Lining. Judmont bought Paula Silver Lining at the end of 2016 so that they could breed her to Arrogate. And uh, and here they found a horse that looks like he's gotten more of his sire's distance influence, um, but his his dam was a very good racehorse herself. So, you know, I think it's probably exactly what Chad Brown wanted in terms of of giving him another bullet in the in the gun for the Travers, and um, and so he's he'll take a shot with him. I would I would assume, but uh, he is a horse that is going to have to get better in order to make a real impact on the finish, and uh, and so we'll see if, if he's quite good enough. It was. I think there was a the, kind of one of the bigger takeaways from the race. Be better was a horse who went off seven to two had a lot of fanfare. He ran horribly. Um, he was last, uh, basically eased. And creative minister was dull. You know, he just never really had any punch. And I wonder if maybe the busy triple crown season has taken a little bit more out of him than uh, than you would think. I also viewed it as a, and I understand conditions wise, he fit the curlin very well, but knowing Kenny McPeak, if creative minister was at peak fitness, it felt like he would have been in the, in the gym dandy. So Kenny McPeak doesn't like, point. To, doesn't like to miss any dances. So it was, yeah, uh, yeah it, I, I, we'll see if he ends up coming back at all. He might be a horse that needs, needs some uh, shallower water, so to speak. My observation on creative minister is that he just looked so one paced that I, I'd be curious to maybe, Give him one more opportunity going a mile and eighth or longer if I knew he was going to be ridden in a more positive manner. He just couldn't make up ground at all, and he was too far back. Now, I'm not saying that I love the horse or anything. I mean, it was a dull effort. But before I fully give up on him, I feel like some of those grindy horses, you just got to put them in the race and let them grind. I liked how he, you know, he. It was I was in the stretch seats that day with uh, Matt Kater from Adelphi, and so you have that position where you sort of feel like you can see what's going to happen for the stretch run. You definitely have a much better perspective of who's got momentum um, and, and you'll, you'll see the winning run early. It was almost the opposite experience with, with creative minister. He was so paddling in front of us. I was like, this horse is off the board. And at least he showed that fight in the lane to get the third. I don't know my thought on him, it, you know, with, 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 if there's something to signal, there's going to be some early speed energy against a weaker group. I'm not saying I'm going to back the horse in the Travers, but I'm not like 100% willing to give up on him despite the, the disappointing effort, though. I fully take your point about uh, how it certainly wasn't what those of us who backed Creative Minister were, were looking for in that spot. Um, let's talk about uh, Saturday's races, Nick, um, unless there's anything else. Was there anything else from last week at Saratoga that caught your eye or you wanted to yap about? 
No, I think uh, I think as far as the week the weekdays went, that's probably about it. There was nothing nothing that really stuck out beyond that. Of course, the tip of the cap to our dear friend Marshall Graham, who ran original intent in the uh, Birdstone on Thursday and looked three or four different times like he was going to finish off the board and three or four different times like he was going to win. He is just, he is a horse that they, I don't, I said to Marshall, I, I think if they rode a race at 30 furlongs, it would probably be ideal for original intent. He just keeps on grinding. So he's, uh, it was, it was not good news that we found out on, uh, I believe Thursday as well, that the Grand Prix du American Jockey Club Invitational, whatever the hell the tortured name of the race was, is not being run at Aqueduct. So that takes one more uh, 14, 13 plus furlong race out of the mix. But I think uh, original intent might ultimately be on track for whatever the marathon race is called now on Breeders' Cup weekend. So pretty excited for Marshall. He claimed original intent with the goal of, of winning the Trails End, and he's now won the Trails End twice at uh, Oakland. So I know it's been a lot of fun for him. That'll be one of Marshall's favorite horses at this point, given his affinity for the trail's end, as we've discussed many times on these airwaves. And it was great to see him get that second. Was it was Fearless? Was that the horse that won? Fearless won, yes. Fearless is, uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that Luis Saez is probably the only jockey in the world that could ride Fearless. One, because he's very strong. The other, because Fearless has to be ridden the entire time. I just don't think Irad wants to work that hard. And and I and I don't think I don't think John Velasquez, God love him, is capable of doing it. I, I don't not at this stage of his career. So fearless is fearless. I mean, he was he was under a ride for roughly eight of the fourteen furlongs in the Birdstone. He's just I bet that yeah, it was crazy. Of- it, it was crazy. I bet the horse and was had given up many many times before came up came, came grinding along. I almost said plugging along to me grinding along in the stretch, and it was a it was a good ride. I don't know about you, Nick, but I love these the, the the marathon dirt races. I wish it would turn into more of a division. I think it's a great way for slow slower horses, but that have another quality that I think horse players admire, and that's real stamina. You don't really get to see it on the dirt much, and it looks it's a stretch run like that. I mean, maybe it's not the most aesthetically pleasing to those of us used to you know the kind of racing we have here in America, but it's a discipline into in and of itself, and I like it. I, I wish we'd have more of it. Me too. And I think the the Breeders' Cup Marathon suffered uh, a little bit the wrong. I think the fate was sealed with some of those bad synthetic runnings. But I think it's a race that deserves another uh, another shot, maybe not as a Breeders' Cup race, but I do wish that more tracks would commit to doing it. And I know early in the spring, of course, you have Oakland, but they're doing it in more of a starter allowance capacity. I think Martin Panza was trying to get at something by doing more of it in uh, in New York with the Brooklyn and the Birdstone and that Grand Prix race. So, I, you know, it would be great to see a race like the Gallant Fox come back in the winter, especially now that you're you're on the main track at Aqueduct. You could easily run, uh, what, a mile and five-eighths or somewhere in in that range. Maybe mile and five-eighths might be tough. because Yeah, no, that would work. You start at the five-eighths pole. Yeah, so then that's mile and three-quarters would be even better. So I hope it, I hope it makes a comeback as well. I think it would make for a lot of fun. Having a real program where there was sort of a, a starter series that fed into um, a graded stakes program, I think that's what you need to do to get a uh, to, to get a, 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 a real division working. You got to really it's 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 a build, and I guess the hardest part is it often involves coordination 
among among circuits. But in New York, you'd really have an opportunity to you'd really have an opportunity to do it. I, I think it's a good I think it's a good idea, and I'm glad we're putting it putting it out there in the world, even though that was you know unscheduled for the program here today. We'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming with a look at Saratoga on on Saturday. And why don't we just start with <laughs> Jackie's Warrior? Oh my goodness, that was an easy, easy win. This horse is just so cool. I mean, it's I, I was shocked that no horse had won a grade one in three consecutive seasons with all the years they've been racing up here. I figured somebody done it, but Jackie's Warrior is the one who gets to put his name next to that. And have you ever seen a horse asked less for run during a race than Jackie's Warrior in the Vanderbilt? No, he like he really poured it on. I mean, he really laid it on thick with the the way he handled those horses. I mean, I, I would almost say that he treated them with disdain. Um, he, he was very <laughs> impressive, and uh, and Joel Rosario certainly wanted to to pose as much as he could down the stretch. Yeah, the good thing about Jackie's Warrior is is that he is a horse that has he established himself as a top level horse as a two year old, and he really never took a step back. And, and the funny thing is that in consecutive years. He had a comeback race at Oakland that I think a lot of us, uh, you know, wise guys said, oh, it's maybe not quite as good. Maybe he's lost a step. You know, he lost the Southwest in, in 2021 to essential quality. And we thought, oh, maybe he's not as good, this and that. And and then the Asmussen barn is obviously so good right now when it comes to really targeting an objective and having a horse ready for that. And I think one of the things that one of the charges against Asmussen in years past was that he had a difficult time getting horses to perform at a high level year to year. And and he's gotten so good at it. I mean, his dirt horses right now are are just they're consistent, they're they're fast, they can get themselves into the race. You know, it they're a they're just very, very tough to beat at the top end. And of course, this is a guy who has probably five hundred horses in training that range from Jackie's Warrior and Epicenter all the way down to he'll probably have a nickel maiden claimer, straight claimer going at Louisiana Downs today. So, you know, it's that's just how his his barn rolls. But yeah, this was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty eye catching and yeah, I think you can appreciate the ease with which he won. He got 105 buyer, which uh, is, is very Jackie's Warrior-like and uh, certainly makes him a very heavy favorite in the forego. Steve already laid out the plan, which is going to be the forego and then the Breeders' Cup Sprint and then the Breeding Shed. This is a horse who actually has had a stud deal in place since he was a two-year-old. So hats off to Kirk Robinson, who I guess worked out with Spendthrift uh, running this horse, continuing running this horse uh, even though – he could have easily been in the shed by now. Time from US was a 123, a little slow second quarter. Um, there really was not much pace on. You know, the, the, the concern, let, let's be realistic about Jackie's Warrior. The concern becomes what happens in the Breeders' Cup sprint if it's a situation like last year where they go really fast. And Jackie's Warrior has had races where he's gone really fast early in the past, but um, they haven't happened all that often. They haven't happened where he's been able to withstand it in quite a while. You know, last year he was asked to go pace figures in the Breeders' Cup of around 130 on Timeform US, and that was enough for him to to more or less wilt in the late stages. So that'll be the real question. And if you have a if you have a, any bit of doubt, then you'll get paid. You know, it's really it's going back basically to last year's Jerkins, the last time he was involved in a very fast paced race, and he was able to withstand it. Of course, he was facing life as good that day. He ran extremely well. So, you know, that's that'll be the one question that we'll all hold in reserve. But I think him running in the forego will be one of the more exciting parts of the day. He, for me, is 
practically nailed on for the sprint because I just think you can conjure excuses last year. He had that busier summer with some really tough races. And then it wasn't just the supersonic pace, but he also spent, we talked about dead rails before we spent some time on the rail uh, at Breeders Cup, which I don't think was a great place to be in that race. So I think the combination of things, I mean, he, he, he went out, went out like a light uh, in the manner of a, of a tired horse anyway. So I don't know how much, I'm not saying he would have won if it if it had been a different racetrack. I think it's really a combination of things, but I think that's why it looked as bad as it did. Um, and you look at his PP now, and you just it just the 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 losses all have these like for me anyway fairly obvious reasons why they exist. And I think he's just he's just going to be coming into the race so much better. And and maybe maybe enough people will question him that he'll be a, a halfway a halfway bettable, decent price. I mean, it's all going to depend on who turns up, of course, but I'm, I'm super interested in him. I'll see if I can find a number, if there is a future book number on what he is for that race now. And we can, we can talk about if we think it's, it's value from, from this far out, but I'm, I, I just, I love the horse and we already gave Marshall and, and 10 strike and, and clay and the partners plenty of love, but it, absolutely excellently executed plan with the cleverly named knee deep in snow to get, uh, to get second in that one. Yeah. This is a horse whose career has uh, maybe not gone exactly according to plan, but he broke his maiden on Kentucky Derby day in 2019. And they claimed this horse for 80,000. He got a hundred buyer figure the day that they claimed him. And since then he has now finished in the money in three stakes, including a grade one. So that's how, you know, people say, how can you, how can you make money in the game? That's how you can make money in the game. If you can find the right horses to claim and, you know, let's be honest. I mean, and I think Matt Shire is terrific. I banged the drum for more people to use Matt Shire um, after getting to know him a little bit in 2018. But Matt Shire is not uh, somebody that you are necessarily expect is going to move a horse up off the claim, not off of Mike Maker. But it just goes to show you that if you take a good horse and you give them the right kind of treatment, you either keep them in form if they're already there and you find the right spots to run them and you can definitely make money. This is a horse they claim for 80. They got 70,000 for running second on Saturday. So, I mean, they're almost out for the claim in one race and they had already made some money on the prior two starts. So yeah, very, very good claim. Um, Corey Molis, who uh, we met at on Belmont day is, uh, is also involved in the partnership. And I think it's at, ironically, I think there's four guys in the partnership. I think that as of June, Marshall had never met any of them. So they <laughs> just all were, <laughs> I think they've, I think they've met each other now, especially with Saratoga going on, but yeah, it was a lot of fun for them to run second. I also think that Ricardo Santana gave him an excellent ride, basically running for second, you know, which was a yeah, smart thing sure. to do. And, and, you know, while he may not be as actively involved in the Asmussen barn as he was in the past, I think Ricardo probably knows exactly how good Jackie's warrior is as well. So yeah, look, sometimes in that scenario, the best thing to do is just say, Hey, if we finish second, we're going to be pretty pleased. If you see Corey, tell him the next time he's in a contest, you got to count and make sure you make enough bets to 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 hit your minimums so you don't get the DQ'd again like he did in Monmouth's uh, pick your prize contest uh, back in back in June. Yeah, I would definitely remind you of that. I noticed that he played the Naira Bets contest on Saturday, but honestly, he was so far behind me, I didn't have to tell him anything about how he was. <laughs> did you get a result there? I won. You won again, jeez, Louise! It's been, it's been a good run. Won, yeah. Yeah, it's been a if good only run. there was some kind of tour, if only there was some kind of tour in this thing, you'd be sitting atop the leaderboard. You don't, No one's rooting for, for them to get their act together as far as that goes, more than Nick Tamro. I'll tell you that, that's, folks. That's the truth. I've, I found my price point. All those years I was floundering in the high high buy-in contests, and I'm, I'm just a $200 guy, so it, it's worked out well. 
Do you think having done it so much now that in a contest like the Breeders' Cup contest, you could just use the exact same strategy and just add zeros to the to the end of the bet? Is it as simple as that? Or is there something comfort zone wise that, that you lose? <sighs> I think there's something comfort zone wise that I lose. I think I just have to mentally get over that, but um, I, I need to be the weakness in my live money tournament game has always been that I have been too hesitant to really put all the chips in the middle. And I think that's, right. you know, in, in playing a contest where you have a $200 bankroll, I mean, I regularly make a, my first bet is usually around $200. So like, it should be right. Exactly. So on Saturday, I bet 60 to win on the Safi Joseph horse that won the third and had a variety of exactas. Um, and so I ended up with the, uh, with the win bet plus the exacta. And so that was worth, you know, a little over two grand. I mean, that gave me a huge lead. If that was a, a $2,000 bankroll and I was willing to bet 600 to win and have, you know, a hundred on the exacta, well, then I would have had 20,000 would have been really hard to beat from that point. So yeah, I think if I can apply the same, the same uh, theoretical approach to it, regardless of the bankroll, that would certainly make a big enough difference. And it would, it would be the, it would really be the intelligent thing to do. It's, it's, I'm I'm interested to see how it, uh, how it plays out based on this run of success. And that Safi Joseph runner, whose name is almost in my head, but I don't quite have it. What was it? Kiss a lot. Kiss a lot who you'd put right on top in your selections over at inthemoneypodcast.com. And we should just let people know that these Saturday contests at Saratoga, they're happening um, they're happening every, every week. So you can put your 300 down and get a chance to do something that not many can do. Humble Nick Tamara. Exactly right. That's what you, that's what you want to do. Uh, you can also subscribe to In The Money Plus because on the Nick's notebook, Kiss A Lot was the play of the day for Saturday. At fourteen. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. And yet, and yet, nobody else followed you in in the in the Naira Betts contest. That's something I've had people tell me that. Oh, I'd love to do your show, but I'm playing in the contest. Um, you know, you you have no such no such compunction. And I think you're smart because it's the best example of this is from Sean Borman, who talks about all the years that he and Mike Maloney were playing together and looking at the exact same information, and they they sometimes come up with different horses or different approaches. And then even if they like the same horse, how they bet it would be completely different. So, I mean, I don't think you're giving up too much equity by having your picks be public in a situation like that. Do you obviously you agree or you wouldn't do it? Yeah. I mean, my picks have been out there so much when I've been playing in contests and, and I mean, it would be like, it would be like somebody leaving their, their game plan out before a football game. And then you are just seeing, you know, five things on it. That means nothing about what they're actually going to do. You know, so it, it was – in fact, I remember catching a lot of flack after the 2014 Breeders' Cup because people said, well, your pick sucked. I don't know, you know, how you could have done so well. And it was like, well, I mean, I may have only picked one or two winners, but that doesn't mean that I, I couldn't place winning wagers, you know, by structuring them properly. And having a good betting day is totally different than having a good handicapping day. So, yeah, it just kind of goes into it. I, I promise I've, I've never misled anyone. I've never tried to cold water anyone in anything I've done would seem to go against your personality that's for sure the odds checker prices for the breeders cup sprint jackie's worried there's a wide variance here as short as five to six um there's something the, the as as nice as five to four and then the sharpest book i would say has 11 to 10 around about jackie's worried for keeping in mind these prices are non-runner no bet are not non-runner no bet. In other words, these bets are action. If Jackie's Warrior doesn't end up going in the race, you lose. 
I, I don't know. I don't mind that five to four, honestly. I, I think that's a decent price um, for, for him in that race. It would seem like, according to the market anyway, potential fly in the ointment would be the idea of flight line shortening up and going to the sprint. But I feel like the, the dirt mile, if he doesn't stay the mile and a quarter, I feel like they might go dirt mile over sprint. Um, and I guess Jack Christopher being in there. I mean, there, there are some serious horses for sure. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't hate that price. What's your impression of it? Um, you know, just because I think we're, we're probably basking in the glow of his win on Saturday. I would want to see, I think, I think I, w- I would want to see three things. I want to see him running the forego. I want to see Jack Christopher shorten up in the jerkins if that's where he's going. And I want to see flight line run in the Pacific classic. And then I think we'll have a much better sense of where he stands. I mean, you know, last year was probably not the greatest example, more of an outlier, but I mean, last year's Breeders' Cup sprint at this point in the year, Breeders' Cup sprint winner had run in nothing but allowance races. So, I mean, it, it, now that also had a lot to do with the fact that I do think Jackie's Warrior was getting close to over the top by Breeders' Cup time, and I don't think that'll be the case this year. I think the campaign has been much more situated with him being as good as he could possibly be for the Breeders' Cup. But um, I would I would probably do that one last sweep. I agree with you that I think if Flightline ends up distance limited, he probably goes more in a race like the Dirt Mile. Um, I, I don't think a six furlong race is really what they want with him, especially on a on a ten to six cutback. Where because I'm sure he's not going to run again after the the Pacific Classic. That's right. Yeah, there's no way he's going in the sprint. As I think about it for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I think once once we see all that, I mean, I think if you get through that and he's still kind of in the position that he is right now, I, I could see three to two or so being fair. Yeah. All right. We'll see how it all plays out. A division, obviously, we're very interested in. We'll talk about it a little bit later in the show when we get to the win in your in race for the for the Breeders' Cup Sprint that we had out out at Del Mar. But while I have you, Nick, I want to keep talking Saratoga and the next race on the docket is the Jim Dandy Stakes, where uh, Epicenter I just thought was extremely good, uh, visually impressive, and nice on the clock. This one came back at 102 on the buyer speed figure scale. I don't have the time form in front of me, but I'll dig for it if you don't have it there. I will find it uh, right now, in fact, and he got a one. I'm sorry, that's the wrong. That's last year's. Last year's Travers Day. I don't think you want to know. I was going to say Latruska ran in the race after Jackie's Warrior. Um, <laughs> yeah, Epicenter was able to get a time form US figure of 124. So, um, yeah, you know, this this race, so a few things about this race, one of which was there was a lot of, of chatter. And, and of course, if you watch the Saratoga Live show, they have a lot of time to fill on the air. So they talk about the feature races pretty frequently. And there was a lot of conversation about early voting and the, and the tactics that early voting was going to use. And it seemed like the early voting camp was sort of going out of its way to make a comment about Epicenter. And so it was, to me, it was just very, very surprising that you would make your tactical approach essentially all about pivoting if you needed to, depending on what another rival did. So I actually thought for early voting's case, it worked out well that Epicenter didn't break again, and he was given the lead. That being said, early voting ran very, very poorly. I mean, this was a very, this was an almost shockingly bad performance by early voting. It makes you question everything about him, including his Preakness win. Um, Perhaps, I, I know the excuse afterwards was that he didn't like the track, I've always maintained that that's the racing equivalent of the dog ate my homework. 
So I, <laughs> I just, I, I can't take it. Um, so, so that, that being number one, well, I guess we could work our way up. Zandon, I thought ran, ran well. I still think Zandon is distance limited. I don't think he wants to go beyond a mile and an eighth, if even a mile and an eighth. Um, I would, Zandon would be an incredible cutback in the Jerkins, even with Jack Christopher in there. In fact, I would prefer Jack Christopher be in there. He is a horse, I think, who will really ideally be suited to a mile. And then as far as Epicenter goes, you know, Pete, if I had told you you could have five to one midway down the backstretch, when early voting's out there cruising in 48 and one, and Epicenter is last, I think you probably would have been hesitant. Yeah, you know, I, said, I might have said, well, thank you. I was not I was not pleased during the early part of that race. In my analysis, I kept saying, oh, I think they're going to be aggressive. They'll sit right off early voting's hip, and then it'll take him on the turn. And da, 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 da. When he's last and the pace is only even, I'm thinking, how is this? I've seen this movie before, and I don't like how it ends. And I mean, five to one maybe would have been enough for me to say, eh, what the heck? This is a horse that was even money before the race, and Rosario can ride cold like that. But yeah, I wouldn't have, I certainly wouldn't have been cutting in line to take it. I, I, I thought his goose might be cooked at that point. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think that they didn't want him to be closer. I, I think, and the, and the concern is that, you know, he's, he's been a little sluggish out of the gate now twice in a row and you don't want to see him develop those kind of issues because they, they become more problematic when he's facing even better horses. But um, even where he ended up, it was like, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter. He he was he was comfortable back there. And I was watching on the, the Saratoga live show. And so you see all of these different camera angles. And I kept saying to myself, well, it looks like he's he's going OK. You know, it looks like he's comfortable. It, it doesn't look like Rosario's panicking or anything like that. So, yeah, he was just he I would say overwhelmed those horses is, is a fair way to put it. I thought he ran extremely well. And I think uh, that he has now asserted himself the best horse in this crop. And I think he'll prove it in the Travers. Ultimately, he'll get a, a, a more uh, robust test. Uh, the horses that are out there lurking include Cyberknife and Charge It, that are both the graded stake winners from the month of July. Um, it, I, I suppose this is something I should have looked up, but Taba can run in John Terranova's name, as far as I know. Right. If that was something yeah. that Zidane wanted to do. I know Pinehurst was working with Baffert and then went over and ran for Terranova on Sunday. So, I mean, obviously, if that happens and that's allowed, then, I mean, he would have to be considered a major player, too. I thought he ran. We talked about the Haskell last week. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be a bigger field. It'll be there'll be a little bit more going on. But uh, I think at this point, all aboard the uh, Epicenter Express. I really was impressed by the way he finished up. And to me, in the manner of one who's going to improve next time and might improve with the distance as well, what is the latest with Cyberknife? I mean, is he, as far as we know, going to be pointed this way? And is I think he's still going to have to take yet another step forward to hang with Epicenter the way I look at the world. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, don't, I haven't read anything about it or seen anything definitive. I fear that Brad Cox is going to run the horse in the Pennsylvania Derby because he's probably going to use the excuse. Brad Cox hates running his horses against each other, and he now has a built-in excuse of not having to do that with Tawny Port running well enough in the Jim Dandy to be brought back in the Travers, which it, he deserves. Um, it also gives him more time off the Haskell, which I know is something that, that Brad covets. He has two grade ones. If he wins the Pennsylvania Derby, he'll have three grade ones. The question becomes, if Epicenter wins the Travers and Cyberknife wins the Pennsylvania Derby and they are both off the board in the Breeders' Cup Classic, 
Epicenter has to be the Eclipse Award winner, right? I mean, he outran him in the Kentucky Derby. He ran second in the Preakness. He won the Louisiana Derby. He won the Risen Star. He won the Jim Dandy. He won the Travers. That's a better resume than Arkansas Derby, blank in the Kentucky Derby, Matt Wynn, Haskell, PA Derby. 100% agree. I mean, I think you got to take the head-to-heads into account. I know I as a voter. And, like, hey, I get to vote again this year. Um, and and as a voter, I would look at the head-to-heads. Again. <laughs> it's so true it's so true and then the other thing is that the kentucky derby um gets it's like the breeders cup to me in a way it, it counts it counts a time and a half or two it's just so so important and i mean i've said it a hundred times now on these airwaves but i mean i'm gonna give i know i've said this before i try not to get too wise guy too trip oriented or whatever when it comes to my voting i want to say i want to take the bill parcells attitude that you are what you are. You, if you won, I, I never as a horse player say, oh, you won the race, so you were best. But I take a little bit more of that attitude when it comes to voting. But when in an example as extreme as Epicenter, wh- where I think it's just very easy to make the case that he was best in both the, the, the Preakness and the Derby, I'm going to be giving him extra credit for that. So, yeah, I mean, obviously we're talking about a theoretical world. He has to still go and win the Travers, but it'd be very tough unless somebody wants to unless somebody with other credentials then goes as and as a three-year-old goes and wins the Breeders' Cup Classic, I'm getting ready to to call Epicenter my my three-year-old champ, maybe prematurely, but that's that's just the way I'm I'm looking at it. But I'm, you know, I'm fairly deep in the tank for this horse, as people know at this point. I was a little slow to come around on Epicenter, but I, I'm I've been very, very impressed with with what I've seen. And and I like your ideas about uh about where these horses might might go next. We'll see, we'll see what connections decide to do. Before we leave Saturday, I, we, this is unscheduled, but I'm sure you can do it with me on the fly here. Capture the flag who won the very first race going what I would have thought on his pedigree might have been an inadequate five and a half furlongs. Looking outpaced early, um, ends up winning very, very easily in a race that the clock didn't love. But there are enough mitigating circumstances here that I'm willing to if, if I were making a, a hopeful future market, I'm pretty sure his name would be among the, the top of the ones of that market. What did you think of Capture the Flag? Uh, yeah, you know, this was, and I think we'll talk a little bit about some Sunday two-year-olds as well. Uh, this was not the most robust looking field on paper, um, especially after the Ian Wilkes uh, bourbon, I believe bourbon resolve is the horse's name, was scratched. The uh, yeah, the interesting thing about capture the flag is that the pedigree on the damn side, of course, is very much geared towards running distances, uh, turf. Um, it's a typical you know classic type of pedigree, being a horse that's owned by Joe Allen. This was a slow race. That would be my big worry. Horses like this generally don't they don't improve enough overnight to get good enough to win races like the hopeful. Usually, I think it was you know there's always. And it's kind of funny to juxtapose this horse against Justique. There's something romantic for racing fans about Suge McGahee and John Sheriff's winning with first-time starters because they're known as these uber-patient horsemen whose horses generally get better with significant experience. And so everybody just becomes that much more enamored with those horses. And and then Capture the Flag, of course, had the ultimate, the ultimate bad analytical uh, thing play into it, which is, well, he was barely asked. He could have run faster. 
and and right, that's right. been you know that's the death knell of many many bad horse players. So, <laughs> you know, I I think it'll be interesting to see if he runs in the hopeful of maybe Suge wants more ground or where he ends up surfacing next. I, I have to admit, Suge's barn has been very very cold in New York this year. Uh, pretty much since he came back from Florida, he's been uh, he's been very very quiet. This is his only winner at Saratoga. Suge right now, five for 67 with a 49 cent ROI in New York in 2022. So wow. it's, it's, and, and, you know, a lot of times firsters are kind of the only thing you win with when you're going bad. Uh, but this is a guy who's obviously we've generally seen his barn in the 15 to 20% range. And uh, he has won two races in New York since the Belmont stakes. So it's, it's a little surprising to see that being the case, but uh, yeah, we'll see how capture the flag shakes out. I'm, I'm, I would not be betting him the hopeful at this point, but I will say that we've also not really seen a ton of of two-year-old races at this meet, so we don't really know kind of where everybody shakes out. Hopefully, they'll start to fill a little bit more as time goes by. A few things just to piggyback on that, and then we'll pivot to Sunday. Maybe we'll go right to Justique. We'll, we'll zip out west for a minute before we come back east, but... You make the point about about Chuck McGahey, and it makes me it makes me worry that the the underlying factor there um, does it have to do with the, the Phipps family seeming to have fewer runners than in previous years? Could this could this not? I mean, obviously the man still knows how to train. Maybe, maybe it's it's just a question of the stock not quite uh, not quite being there for him. And then you mentioned about the could have run faster thing. I agree that I think it's dubious when it comes to. To, to capture the flag. I think you can pump in blue sky if you want when it comes to the distance and the hands and, and the hands that, that he's in. But I will say Jackie's warrior. We, I didn't make this point at the time, but to me, that's the kind of performance where you could say, Oh yeah, he could have run faster. He was just wrapped up from such a long way out and just cruised through the race um, in such a manner that I, I think there's a few more points behind that buyer speed figure uh, in terms of ability when it comes to evaluating a horse like Jackie's Warrior. What do you think about those couple of ideas? I don't. I don't have an argument with that. I think Jackie's Warrior is a horse because, as you said, he was in such a sustained. Uh, like almost idling for so long, there probably was more there that could have been produced, especially from farther out. But um, and I think as far as a two-year-old first-time starter goes, you know they don't know any different, so they're producing at essentially at the same level they've been trained to in that scenario. And I think that's exactly what was going on with capture the flag. So yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's just something you want to be you want to be careful with when you're talking about it in general, or you see a horse that's that's ridden in hand and, and stuff like that. Um, it, I think it's especially dangerous when, when you see a horse that's almost eased up a little bit before the wire and it becomes, Oh, he could have gone faster. I was like, well, I mean, he was kind of at peak speed until pretty late. So I, I would just, uh, I'd caution people about things like that. Generally speaking, I, I completely agree that there, there are rare, there are rare exceptions for me though. And I'd put that one in that, in that camp. Um, as far as as far as Jackie's Warrior goes, let's talk about this eighth race at Del Mar from Sunday. Two year old Phillies going five and a half. We had uh, we don't have any pace figures yet on it, but it looked like a, a you know a, a certainly a fast ish place. The pace mainly held together with the pace setter clicking in third and the horse who was third throughout most of the running getting second. But here from the clouds comes Justique for John Sheriffs, who hasn't who. You could. I'm going to just take a guess. You might be able to count on one hand the number of first-time starter winners he's had since Zenyatta. That may be a slight exaggeration, but I don't really think so. So, I, again, part of the reason for some of the blue sky being being pumped in here. Um, 
pretty darn cool pedigree too for Justique by Justify out of a Bernardini dam called Grazie Mille. And uh, the betters who took the eight to one were giving uh, a thousand thanks for this one as uh, as she came back into the winner's circle. What did you think of this horse? You know, I, I felt like I had to go watch the race because Twitter exploded when, uh, when horse <laughs> won. So, you know, I was expecting something somewhat similar to what I saw. Um, it was a race that you could tell they were moving early. You could tell that she was probably having a bit of a difficult time keeping up, which is no surprise. She is a half to Motown, who was a Remsen Hollywood Derby winner, a versatile horse, good horse for, uh, for Tony Dutro. So there's obviously distance in her pedigree. You know, it was a good race. A lot of times situations like this where horses break poorly and they're able to run into the race as much as she was, it's because of the pace. And then that was the case with her. The pace was quick early and she was helped by it. You know, what you're what you're looking for with her is that same as the sugar idea, right? You're going to you're going to this is a horse that's going to get better. And and she's probably not wasn't necessarily conditioned to be good now. Um, and, and did it kind of on raw ability. I think that's a fair argument. You know, I, I don't think Victor Espinosa came even close to getting to the bottom of her. What I would tell everybody is calm down about when you see a horse that you think was really impressive and they don't get a high buyer speed figure. It's not the end of the world. I mean, I will say, and, and I, I should be careful about the way I phrase this, but even the DRF Twitter account tweeted this thing like, uh, Impressive maiden winner Justique got just a 72 buyer speed figure. What are your thoughts? And it's like, you don't you don't understand. This is not something that's up for debate, right? I mean, the figure is the figure. That part of it is is ironclad. That part of it is solid. If you think that the the number belies the performance, that's fine. And you will have the opportunity to bet on or against this horse either way. But, you know, in this case, Speed figures are much more science than art, right? I mean, they're not, this is not a, a figure that was adjusted because she ran on the West Coast or anything like that. This is just how things go. And this is just the race that that she ran. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's interesting and she's probably got more upside than the average horse we would see win in that kind of scenario. Did you look at the day from a figure-making point of view? I mean, I agree in theory, figures are more science than art, but there are some days where a whole lot of art uh, comes into it. So, uh, and I do know that some private figure makers who may appear regularly on the show had it a little bit faster than that. But uh, I'm just curious from a figure making point of view, if, if you really, I mean, you said it was ironclad, so I'm assuming you looked and it, it, it looks very straightforward. Um, I'm looking right now. I, I will also tell you that John Shurups has won with three first time starters in the last five years. One of them was on turf, was a horse named Hollywood Girl who amounted to actually very little. She never won again. The other was Hard Not to Love, who was a grade one winner. So, yep. you know, it's it's kind of sticks by what you were, uh, were saying with regards to, yeah, this is a very clear-cut figure-making day. This is one, one variant the okay. whole day. It's just, yeah, this is, this is pretty, it's pretty easy. So it, it makes a lot of sense. It fits with what went on the rest of the day. It also fits with the small amount of a small number of horses that had run before, which is important to remember as well in figure making. So, you know, I, I hope that she runs in the Del Mar debutante and we see how she stacks up against other uh, very good horses. Let's talk about another two-year-old who we saw on Sunday. This one had been talked about a whole bunch on these airwaves, uh, 
on the backstretch, Prank making her debut. And I mean, this for me was one of the most impressive Saratoga two-year-old performances I've seen in quite some time. And the clock had a little bit different of a perspective on this one. We're, we're heading into the race. Did you pick Prank in the, in the race? Was, was she in your, in your bets? I mean, I was a smart ass and I picked check engine light because I thought she was training well. Also, I didn't see the DRF clocker report before I, I typed my analysis. I probably, you know, I didn't need the four to five winner as far as I was concerned, but I picked her second. And then, I mean, once I, once I saw what everybody was saying about her in terms of her training, I went uh, pretty thin on the pick five. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's how it played out. Wins by nine and three quarters. Getting faster now. Interestingly, Tom Form did have it coded blue throughout, despite the um, the, the seemingly it's one of those you know twenty one ninety one. You expect you're, you're sort of conditioned as a as a horse player to think that's at least going to be even. Time Form has it you know uh, slow throughout, but that doesn't bother me at all. The way she went through the race, I mean, she just she just destroyed this field and and really looked to have something more in the locker. And you've got a pedigree here that also suggests that more ground is going to be. Her friend being a, being a half to a Belmont winner, but the the into mischief precocity was on full display in this one. Um, I assume you're pretty excited about her going forward. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of reminded you of a horse that Todd had uh, five or six years ago named Cherry Lodge, who debuted and won for fun on a Sunday at Belm at Saratoga early in the meet. And she came back and ran in the uh, spinaway and underperformed and, and really ended up being a turf sprinter for the rest of her career. That just, do- it doesn't look like prank will have a similar fate from a distance perspective. As you said, it looks like prank really wants to run, run and run and run and run from a, you know, pedigree wise, it's kind of interesting. So Todd has won two year old races this year already with first-time starters, one who is a half to Nest and one who is a half to Modonical. So it's kind of an interesting mixture of horses, given their pedigrees and and how, you know, how their older siblings have run and what distances their older siblings have been good at. Um, it, that that makes it kind of fun. So, yeah, I you know, Prank was was as advertised, and and you knew when she broke like she did that she was going to be pretty tough, and it, it played out that way. So I, I'm I'm interested to see. What happens with her next? Um, I, I will not hesitate to tell you at this point that because it looked like her pace was moderate and because of the fanfare, Cherry Lodge got an 89 buyer for what it's worth in her debut. So it's very, very similar. Um, I'll, I'll bet against her in the spinaway. I'll, I'll, I can almost tell you right now, not even knowing who's in there, I will almost certainly bet against her. Um, I wanted to mention, and, and you and I were talking off air, about another Todd Pletcher trainee that was an impressive winner on debut at Monmouth and got 101 by her speed figure named Money's Gold. She has not worked since she broke her maiden on the 17th of June. So, But even looking at what was in the Schuylerville and and um, what horses we might see pop up, um, Prank is just the kind of horse that's going to be very... I don't want to call her overrated because we don't know how good she is, right? But she is a horse that's going to take a tremendous amount of money based on that one performance. I'm not saying it's undeserved, but uh, it, it's she's the kind of horse that I would want to – I would take a little bit of a swing against. It, it If you're right, you're going to get paid. So, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to get swept up in the hype here, but I – you know, objectively, I recognize that, uh, you know, as a horse player, being a little bit contrarian and saying, okay – you know, let's let's see what else is out there before we anoint this one the the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies winner. But those were my 
those were my first thoughts on TV were, okay, <laughs> even if I just figured the time was going to come back quick from just, I, I don't pay attention to times throughout the day the way that you do, but I, I was, I was willing to mention the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies as a possible next destination, but obviously we'll see, we'll see, learn, learn a lot more, presumably later in the Saratoga meet and money's goal, definitely one to, to keep, to keep an eye on. There'll be plenty of hype around her when she comes back off that gaudy figure. What was the official prank figure? Was it a 91? 91 buyer, exactly. Yep. And I, yeah. I will I will refrain from making comments about where two-year-olds are destined to go because last year when Stellar Tap helped uh, Steve Asmussen set the record for wins, I said that he was going to be the – that he was the presumptive uh, two-year-old champion and he got claimed a few weeks ago. So I, guess, uh, <laughs> I suppose I could – They don't all work out <laughs> yes you could you could definitely there'd be some poetry if you if you made that if you made that happen let's talk quickly about some of the other saratoga stakes action that we saw on sunday i liked i actually liked splitting up the 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 graded stakes where we had the two on on sunday as, as opposed to having the, the all four on on saturday let's go to the bowling green next nick what did you think of this result yeah, I mean it's hard to to say too much about a race that Rock Emperor wins at two to one, but I guess all of his good training and all the publicity that he's earned in the morning in the past finally played out. The public really got in on him hard, uh, more so than I expected, and and he ran to it. And I think Flavian Pratt did the right thing, which I think that that he's kind of a a horse you have to trick into winning, and you've got to get him to the front as late as possible because he has no courage whatsoever. And and it worked out great. I mean, it was it was a good good win for Rock Emperor, who continues to you know he's a horse I've beat up on quite a bit in the past because he's he he never wins, and I've needed him numerous times, and he's never produced when I've needed him. But um, he's a horse who's been around now for a while. He's a he's kind of a one that you can respect because he's danced a lot of dances. But I don't think that the American contingent for the Breeders' Cup turf is going to scare anybody away from Europe as it shouldn't because. Uh, it's not very good, you know. It's, let's let's not let's not really mince words. Um, Adamo and and Rock Emperor and Tribuvon. I mean, they're not going to keep anybody from coming over in the fall. So hopefully, if they are don't have a lot of participation in a race like the Sword Dancer, one of our domestic horses can can snag that. I think Arklo might be the one. I, I felt like he was probably best. He seemed to be traveling very well. And then I, I I have to watch the tape again. I don't want to criticize Irad for this, but it, but it looked like he maybe wanted to try to make a move up the rail and lost his momentum and switched out and finished with with alacrity. And this was off this long layoff. He's supposed to move up off that run. Am I being too kind to Arc Lotus by saying he was best? What what did you think? Um, it's possible. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have a, a strong argument against that. Um, the problem is he's Arclo. Right. So, I mean, we know that even if he was best on Sunday, his best is just not really that good. Um, I think, you know, I, what's funny is that I think and I I like Florent Giroux. I thought Florent Giroux did a horrible job in most of the races that he rode this horse. And so I was I, I loved him in last year's show, Hirsch. I thought this was like this was just easy money that he was getting Lascano. He was going to get a better ride. You know, everything was going to work out perfectly. And I, I've realized now that Arklo is Arklo's worst enemy. It's not his rider. He's just incapable of getting himself into a good spot, into a good rhythm. And, and so um, this kind of played out in similar fashion, which uh, I'm not surprised to see. 
I, I think, yeah, when you're talking about not that good, it's like when you're talking about world-class turf horses, it's very hard to to throw your hat in that ring. And you look consistently at the figures he's earned and the form that he's shown it it's it's hard to make an argument that he's one of the uh one of the best turf horses in the world but at the same time that that still leaves you plenty of room to be the best turf horse on these shores and that might be all that you need to win the sword dancer this year so we'll see maybe everybody sees sees it the way i saw it and he gets woefully overbet. he's not a horse you want to really get stuck into at a very short price but i did think he was worth noting i also just had a note on uh, on highland chief that i think he was getting he was being sort of asked for early speed energy in the post parade, which I liked, but he looked to get like pretty darn hot going to the post. And then that little awkward break and the bump got just lit up. I, I, maybe this is just crazy, but I feel like I could also under the right circumstances at a big price, give him one more try. Cause I think the world's going to be able to be ready to quite ready to give up on him after, after what was not a very impressive effort on the track. But I think there may have been mitigating circumstances. What, what do you think about Highland Chief going forward? I think that the biggest assist for him in the uh, in the in a race like the Sword Dancer, if Grand Motion runs him there, would really come from Mother Nature. I think he's a horse that probably wants a little more cut in the ground. And uh, based on the, the Man of War, I'm beginning to come to the conclusion that the Man of War is a race that just needs to be it just needs to be expunged from memory because you beer, you beer blew it at the break and, um, and Gufo stinks. So, um, so, you know, I just, I, I don't think it's real. And the fact that Highland chief has come back and run poorly in two straight starts. I mean, the only thing I could attribute it to is the ground. So, I mean, maybe one more try on some less than firm footing, but um, the problem that I had with Highland chief is that, I mean, when he was asked, there was just nothing there. I mean, and he he ended up. I know he was beaten three lengths, but whatever. He was yeah, it's a turf route, so three lengths is a is a chasm, and and you know he kind of the only thing he did was win a, a late battle with cross border for fourth. So that was my that was my take. Um, you know, I'm glad that he got Trevor McCarthy a Grade One win, but uh, I, I don't I don't think there's another big opportunity out there for this horse. I think your note about him improving with cuts certainly seems logical looking at his PP at this point. Let's talk about the Amsterdam before we uh, get ready to, to let you be uh, be done with your work for the day. Gosh, we've gone longer than I had planned, but that happens sometimes when we get rolling. Um, these three-year-old sprinters, it looked like an open race on paper, but uh, one of the runners had a different idea. What did you think of the Amsterdam? I thought Gunite ran really well. I mean, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected this kind of effort from Gunite at all. I thought his his race at Churchill was decidedly mediocre. He got an incredible trip up the rail and and was able to win that day and and really was underwhelming in doing so, beating a couple of big long shots. So I was really you know, it was another one where I, I said to myself, Don't mess around with Steve Asmussen, right? I mean, don't don't uh, underestimate how well he can have a horse get ready for a big objective. And and so even though this wasn't the biggest objective, it was a big enough one to have him ready to win. And he did, you know, and, and so credit to Steve and, and his team for having Gunite ready. I, I thought Accretive lost nothing in defeat. And I think Accretive is a, is a very good horse um, who I'm excited to see moving forward as well. They got a 101 buyer speed figure. So, I mean, it was a fast race. They kind of separated themselves from the rest of the field pretty nicely. So, yeah, bo- all guns to the jerkins for both of them. I would assume that even though Chad Brown might run Jack Christopher, he'd also uh, potentially run uh, Accretive. 
And he's obviously a horse who he's had pretty high expectations for from the start. You know, the, the disappointment here was Corniche, which um, I, I didn't use Corniche for nickel. I thought that Corniche's last, well, I, I guess it was his two back workout where Ness just made him look like a, a stable pony that I thought, well, this horse is not the same. And, and I mean, I kind of always thought Corniche was, was incredibly overrated. So I was not surprised by how poorly he ran. Um, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if we see Corniche run again. I think that this will be a, you know, a, a situation where he probably runs the risk of devaluing himself a little bit by continuing to run. And uh, there'll be all the speculation and conversation about why he might not be an effective horse anymore. But the bottom line is that he was given an opportunity to do something he should have been able to do pretty well on paper. He actually looked like he was traveling well around the turn. And then when Luis Saez moved his hands, there was just nothing there. Yeah, but both the ex-Bafferts were almost unbelievably bad. I was anti-Corniche. I did like Pinehurst a bit. I guess you could say the bobble at the start and the hustle up, and then maybe he bled or something. It, they, it's almost too bad to be believed, especially in a race where um, the pace was supposed to hold together with the uh, Timeform US blue-coated fractions for both the quarter and the half. And it's interesting because th- this is part of the insight of Timeform US. The raw figure completely in agreement with the buyer, 121, translates to that same 101, but the, the algorithm takes points off because of the fact that these horses were up on the pace that wasn't very fast. And for performance figures, brings them down to a, a 117 and a 116, respectively, for Gunite and Accretive. They got an awful lot to find, I would think, when it comes to locking horns with a horse like Jack Christopher in a few weeks' time. You think any of these could step up, though, and have an impact in that race? Um, I do. I actually think the one, two finishers both could be dangerous because, and the only reason I say that is because Jack Christopher's sprint races this year are a little bit of a mirage when you look at them later on. I'm not saying that he's not as good as a lot of people think he is, but he was really pace aided in both the Woody Stevens and, and the Pate mile. I don't think he went fast in either one of those. And I do think there might be some vulnerability if he has to get involved in a little bit too strenuous and early tempo. So that was, uh, that's something I would keep in mind. And I think, I mean, Accretive's run twice, right? So he's still got a ton of upside. He got a 91 buyer on debut and a 101 in his second start. You know, we don't know how good he might right. be. So I, I would I would just keep that kind of in the back of your mind. Pinehurst is also, he's probably not graded state caliber at this point, but he could have been a horse that was hurt by a dull inside as well. I mean, I'm not saying he was one of the reasons... Yeah. His performance was one of the reasons why I thought the rail was bad, but it definitely contributed because he shouldn't have gone out with a whimper like that, given the pace and the fact that he was on a relatively, relatively easy lead. So um, he's, he's a better horse than that. I, I don't know how good he is anymore. And it's, it's really difficult to assess the form of these ex Bafferts as they come into other barns. John Turner was a very good trainer. So, I mean, it's not as if he was going to, you know, some schlub that they plucked off Union Avenue. So um, that being said, it was a it was a surprisingly poor performance. I wish we had some information about whether, you know, I'm speculating about bleeding. It would be wonderful if we actually knew that maybe it'll turn up in some reporting, especially if they if they persist and Pinehurst comes back to another race here at Saratoga. That, that, that's something I'd look for. But yeah, if, there, if there's no other excuse to go out that quickly, I do think you're right that that could be another data point about the about the rail. But obviously it was more than just that. But, you know, it's always, there's a lot of factors that go together to produce 
race results, and we do our best we can to to talk about them here on these airwaves and hopefully entertain folks and give you some ideas for uh, winners the next day. But we got to get you out of here because we've got a man waiting in the in the green room at this point, Nick. But really appreciate your your time on this. Congrats on another Naira Naira Betts contest win. Go play against Nick next Saturday. Knock him off his perch, people. Um, and uh, unless you have a closing thought, Nick, we'll just say goodbye. Yeah, no, the only thing I was going to say about the Amsterdam as well is that, you know, we're taping this on Tuesday, so we have the advantage of knowing what happened on Monday, but Conagher won the House Buster overnight at uh, at Colonial, so hopefully he surfaces for the Jerkins. I'm really, really hoping that Michael Tomlinson gives him an opportunity against better foes to, to prove his mettle. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, no, I've, I've enjoyed being with you and look forward to recapping another big weekend next week. Let's do it, my friend. Till the next time. Thank you, Nick. Tune in this weekend for two Breeders' Cup Challenge Series win and your in-races. The first is the Whitney Stakes from Saratoga, sure to bring a scintillating matchup of top older males in the country. The winner gets an automatic entry into the $6 million Longines Breeders' Cup Classic held on November 5th. Also on Saturday, we have the Clement L. Hirsch from Del Mar with the winner receiving automatic entry into the $2 million Longines Breeders' Cup Distaff on November 5th. Both winners will also receive entry fees paid by the Breeders' Cup, a $10,000 award to the nominator, and a $10,000 travel allowance for horses stabled outside of Kentucky. You can watch on NBC. Coverage starts at 5 p.m. Check it out. Breeders' Cup. Win and you're in. We're also very happy to be working with our friends at BetMakers. Big news coming with the launch of the Monmouth Bets app. Fixed odds betting powered by BetMakers is back and in effect at Monmouth Park. Great early returns. Got a chance to check it out myself while I was down there. 70% of winners are paying more on fixed odds than they are on the tote. With the launch of the app, fixed odds betting now available throughout the state, and we are looking to be expanding our coverage here on the In The Money Media Network. We want you to check out this Monmouth Bets app, which you can use when you're in the state of New Jersey, and you're going to be hearing a lot more about bet makers and fixed odds betting on the In The Money Media Network. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome in a returning guest, one of the people I always like to turn to when it comes to talking all things about Del Mar. He was a guest on our Lifestyle show last year. He uh, turns up from time to time to talk about various issues, from things concerning the industry to where to eat and drink at Del Mar to who's going to win the next race. From Little Red Feather, he is Gary Fenton. Gary, what's up? Well, it's great to be here. Uh, greetings from uh, sunny Del Mar. It's another beautiful day here. Um, we're, we're hoping it doesn't get too warm right now. It's uh, 68, and, uh, you know, when it tops 78, we get a little funky out here. So we hope to stay right in our wheelhouse. And uh, I don't see a cloud, so uh, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have another great day out here. Gary with here. the troll. Gary with the strong troll there of, of Saratoga and our lifestyle here. I, I must admit there have been multiple days this meet where I have fantasized, and it's getting close to being out of the realm of fantasy and into the realm of reality of maybe I should just spend the whole summer in Del Mar. And it's going to happen one of these years. It could even – I made a little bit of noise about spending a big chunk of the meat there this year. I wimped out on that, but uh, I'm, I'm starting to think it's in my future. The more 90-degree days we have here, the more likely that um, that becomes. But thank goodness for the pool anyway. But we're here to talk about a different kind of pool. Um, the pool the, – the players are going to be putting together while playing in this charity contest on Saturday, the Little Red Feather Cares Contest. You can find all the details – we made a little pretty link here for the registration site in the money podcast.com slash LRF 
is the place to go. But uh, tell us a little bit about this. I know it's a it's a handicapping contest unlike any other. Well, it's it's a charity uh, handicapping contest for for our great horse players around the country. You can play on track at Del Mar or uh, with our ADW provider TVG. Um, it's a contest that we started a couple of years ago, uh, and the takeout, uh, two-thirds goes to the horse player and one-third goes to our, our charity, our aftercare charity, uh, which benefits um, not just LRF horses into retirement, but, but uh, the industry as a whole. I have a feeling that there's an origin story around this contest, Gary. How did it come about in the first place? How long has it been going on? Well, we started LRF Cares a, a number of years ago um, when we had a – we had an incident. We had a horse that we had just bought from from Europe, and and she came over here, and she was at Jet Pets uh, in quarantine, and we got a call uh, that she tested positive for glanders, and she was going to be put down within 24 hours. And I didn't know what glanders was. I mean, I had to Google it, and apparently it's a bioterrorist agent uh, that was used in World War II by the Germans who injected it into horses uh, and sent horses into town, and it's so contagious. I think it's more contagious than COVID. Uh, it would just kill scores of people in the town. Um, and when I looked it up, I thought, oh, my God, what, what, what is going on here? I was actually on vacation with my family in, in a hotel room, and uh, it, we got the call late at night. We called our attorney who was going to look into it, and, and I didn't sleep well that night. I actually thought maybe the FBI was going to knock on my door and, and send me into one of those white rooms and asking me why, uh, you know, our horse had glanders. Um, as it turns out, uh, there had been a few – false positives for glanders over the years. Um, and, and we found a scientist who actually had been studying it and been trying to get uh, the U.S. government to revise its protocols to allow uh, subsequent testing. At, at the time, there wasn't any subsequent testing or any protocols to get around euthanizing our horse. Um, well, we spent a considerable amount of time and, and money uh, with our attorney and attorneys, I should say, um, and we got the, the U.S. government to reverse its protocols and, and give our horse another chance to test. Uh, the horse did test negative, uh, but that wasn't good enough for, for our U.S. government. Uh, they actually said that the horse had to stay in quarantine for three weeks and test negative again before it could come out, um, and that would be the only test. So we waited three weeks. Uh, the horse tested negative again, and uh, we got the horse out of quarantine, and we changed policy with the U.S. government, who now – uh, goes with this new protocol, and we've gotten calls over the years with a lot of a lot of other horses that lives were saved with these false glanders positives. That's amazing. That's crazy, and it, not an easy thing to get the U.S. government to change its policy on anything. So you know, that, that, that's definitely another one for your resume. I, I'm giving you know the, the short version of it. There were there were nights where it was like, well, if if so and so doesn't you know pick up the phone and 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 stamps it. Um, they're going to go ahead and, and euthanize the horse. I mean, it was, it was almost like the horse was on death row. It, it was an incredible uh, time, and I'm, I'm glad it all worked out, not only for our horse, but a, but a lot of subsequent horses. And, and the horse, Tareen Dancer, uh, needed some time at the farm after spending three weeks at Jet Pets, but, but did come back, win, win a race at Del Mar, win a race at Keeneland. Um, she was four for seven in her career and uh she just had her first two folds and we look forward to seeing those those babies run um in a couple of years the, those must have been extra special wins for you having that whole backstory tell me a little bit about that and tie it back in to the creation of lrf cares so the 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 the, the horse uh, having some success um you can imagine the partners wanting to do more for aftercare and and for horses and so uh we we started this charity we, we know aftercare 
um, can be a red red t- button issue in terms of you know mandatory support or, or voluntary support. And so we wanted to make it voluntary for our over 300 partners. And uh, we were we were shocked to see so many so many pleasantly shocked to see so many partners wanting to support uh, a, a charity uh, to benefit aftercare. And, and ours is unique in that we, we don't dedicate it to any one particular cause. It's not just oh we're going out there to to try to find LRF horses that have been claimed from us. Uh, and are running at, at tracks and, and, and needing to be retired. Um, we, we get calls from all over the industry asking for help. And so our charity feeds into other charities. And um, we like to use our partners' monies extremely wisely, you can imagine. We appreciate that. And, and just as an FYI for the little deal we're constructing to promote this, all the money that comes our way is going to go right to our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. We're big believers when it comes to the aftercare world that the rising tide lifts all ships. And I know that's a, a principle you believe in as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's the responsibility, as far as I'm concerned, the responsibility and caring for the horse doesn't just uh, stop when the horse, is, horse retires. We take a ton of pride in seeing our horses have fruitful and successful secondary careers. We've had horses gone on to become champion hunter jumpers. And you can imagine our partners a few years later getting getting those emails and those pictures. Um, it really is. Uh, owning a horse is, is they become part of your family. Um, and seeing your family uh, succeed and other things besides horse racing is, is incredibly uh, gratifying. Back to the particulars of this contest, I think one thing that's going to make it extra appealing, we were speaking with Nick Tamaro earlier in the show when we were doing the Saratoga portion of things about how he's really found success playing in these lower money live bankroll contests as opposed to the ones where you have to put up, you know, several thousand dollars. This contest is going to appeal to people at that lower end of the bankroll spectrum because it's a $600 contest to play with 300 acting as your live bankroll and the other 300 that goes to the prize pool. But it also, not unlike our horse player happy hour events, part of that money that's going to the, to the prize pool, there's a charitable donation baked into the cake. Why don't you explain how that works? Well, I, I, I think there's different strategies with, with the smaller money uh, horse player contests as opposed to larger ones. Um, and, and that strategy can be either just pushing into chips right away um, because you have to grow it to the end. I think the, the winner last year had $6,000 from that $300. Um, so, so it's neat, and it gives horse players a, a chance to compete against some of the top horse players around the country without having to bankroll three or five or ten thousand dollars. So it's it's really neat to get some of the top horse players into a contest with our LRF partners and and other um, horse players that that are not at the, the the level of you know some of some of the great horse players out there, like your very good friend Marshall Graham. You get to go toe-to-toe with some big names. I see here last year's winner was uh, Brett Wiener, who's been very, very active on the NHC Tour over the years, a former Saratoga contest winner, definitely definitely a big name. And, yeah, the prize pool is impressive for this thing. You've got, um, reading from the rules here, 60% of the prize pool returned in cash and prizes, and those include a $10,000 BCBC entry, Looks like last year it was two entries to the NHC, a couple of entries to the Pegasus uh, contest. And is that the PCBC? Is that what that is? It, no, it's actually the Pacific Classic. 
Oh, my goodness. I should, I should edit that out, but I'll leave my mistake in. Much better because, of course, it happens much sooner. So in, in that sense, um, yeah, the, of course, the Pacific Classic contest, big contest happening at the end of the meet, and some cash as well. And, and why 60%? Well, because the other 40% is what's going to go directly to the LRF Cares charity. So a lot of uh, a, a lot of good opportunities when it comes to this. We're going to have coverage later in the week as well. Um I imagine you're not eligible to play in this one, or, or are you? How does that work? No, no, I am eligible to play. In fact, uh, I, I, I like playing, and, and my partners like beating me. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun for them, and, and, they, and they do it often. Um, but I, I want to take a second to just really thank Delmar Thoroughbred Club and TVG for coming in and, and supporting LRF Care, supporting this contest. Um, they only have one charity contest during the big summer meet. This is it. Um, and we're very, very thankful for our great relationship. They, they both do a tremendous job for, for California racing and Southern California in particular. Live money contest on track. You can play there, of course. You can also play, as Gary intimated, and I probably should have said earlier, over at TVG.com. You've got win, place, show, exacta, trifecta, and daily double. Speaking of you and your partners, Gary, how's the meet been so far for the Little Red Feather team? We're off to a we're off to a great start. Uh, we won the opening day stake, the Ocean Side with Paul Nikoff, who will come back in the Delmar Derby, and I, it's one of the stakes I've always always wanted to win. I mean, it's the opening day stake. It's it's a three year old, uh, hundred thousand dollar stake for those that haven't won a stake. So it's not the biggest stake in the world, but it, it is the one that kicks off the meet. Um, it garners a lot of attention and gets you off on the right foot. Um, and we were fortunate enough to win it. And then, and then over the weekend, we came back with a, a, a Euro, another Euro, uh, two-year-old uh, that we purchased in May. Um, and, uh, and she won a, a really salty maiden special weight race. Um, and uh, we'll come back uh, later in the meet, hopefully in the, in the juvenile turf, so with the juvenile Phillies turf. So uh, we're off to a very, very good start. Um, we have over 40 horses down here, and in the first two weekends, we've already seen hundreds of partners. Um, so it's uh, in this post-COVID, if I can say it, post-COVID, not really post-COVID, uh, but in this new COVID area, uh, the stands are filled, uh, and everybody seems to be having a great time, which is what it's all about. Freeze, I like for that as as pandemic has become endemic, you know, because it is a misnomer to say that COVID isn't around. I just spoke to a, a friend who contracted it yesterday. Fortunately, uh, much more of the, the sniffles or the sniffles on steroid version. But clearly, when you go to these racetracks and you see uh, everybody who's been around, it's something that's different. So that that's the phrase I like. Pandemic is <laughs> endemic. We've learned to live with it. I, I, that's amazing. Were, are you a scientist? Are you, are you a biology major? <laughs> I play you know? one on a podcast. I occasionally play one on a podcast. And I take your point about winning the ocean side. That's a race, I would think, that for a dyed-in-the-wool Southern Californian like you, it's 65 degrees and you're wearing a parka, it, that, it means more than money to win, a, to win the, the traditional opening day uh, feature at Del Mar. Well, we want to wear parkas out here at 65 degrees. We want to make sure that the country knows that we will buy big jackets and, and support the rest of the country um, when we're sitting here. And and it does get a little cold at 65. <laughs> spoken like a true – spoken like the politician that in, in your other line of work you sometimes have to be. While I have you here, let's talk a little bit about the stakes races from Del Mar on, on Saturday, starting with the win and you're in race for the Breeders' Cup Sprint. That was the Bing Crosby stakes which was won by a horse who I must admit, Gary, I had underestimated coming into this spot, and that's American Theorem. What did you think of this performance? 
Well, I, I thought both the stakes on Saturday were great for the for the for the local guys. I mean, George Papadroma and 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 obviously the Hall of Famer Richard Mandela. Um, but and both horses um, were horses that weren't three year olds or four year olds. They were horses that stuck around and horses that found their spot. And I was really really happy for for George uh, who trains America Theorem and, and it was his first Grade One win. I thought the horse was was uber impressive. Yeah, it was it was it was nice stuff, and this thing came back nice on the the speed figure scale as well. One hundred and four, you know, when you just compare that heads up against the Jackie's Warrior number, and you think about the tremendous success Southern California horses have had in the Breeders' Cup over the years. I mean, I don't know. Do you think he's a serious contender for a race like the Breeders' Cup sprint? Oh yeah, Jackie Warrior is going down for our local, <laughs> local horse here. I, I I hope that they uh, they don't think about running in the Breeders' Cup sprint now, for sure. <laughs> Is there some sarcasm there? Do you think Jackie's Warrior is that nailed on that you're comfortable speaking this way, or are you just that big American Theorem fan that you're speaking with your heart? What's going on? No, no, no. I mean, listen, the performance from American Theorem was was fantastic from an older horse, and and you like to see the horse continue uh, to get better. Uh, It's just as a horse racing fan, it's neat to see a horse like Jackie's Warrior, um, and you want to see horses like that continue on. We, 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 We get them. And they win a, a bunch of races in a row or, or have these big careers, and they don't last very long as, as w- when I was a kid seeing some of those horses out there, like a Kona Gold or whatnot. But uh, it's, it's just fun to watch. It is a cool story. We were talking with Nick earlier about how there was a stud deal in place for Jackie's Warrior in his two-year-old year. So it's pretty great to be able to see him, you know, still running and, and winning grade ones at age four. Another interesting little sideline from the, the Bing Crosby Grade one winner for American Pharaoh on dirt, which there haven't been, you know, maybe maybe quite enough of. I, I wonder if this uh, if if this will end up being something that makes people, you know, look at him a little bit more as a dirt sire. I feel like there's definitely been reputationally anyway this idea that that his babies often want to run more on more on turf. What do you what do you think the future of American Pharaoh as a sire is? Well, well I can say two things. One, if unless my facts are correct, maybe things about he's got six grade ones, three on turf, three on dirt. Um, and we've had a couple of American pharaohs, and, and I will tell you that seeing them train um, gave us ideas that maybe they, they were good on turf, and we did try them on turf. So, no, I, I think we've got, you know, a, a sire here, you know, triple crown winner um, that has the ability to throw both, which is obviously pretty incredible. Yeah, it'll be fun to see what uh, what happens with him going forward. I know there was, you know, some sense of, oh, given the mayors he had, his success has been okay, but – you know, but of course, as they go on in their their careers, sires can often you know go on different types of trajectories. I just thought it was kind of cool seeing him get this Grade One sprinting with a with an older horse. It just shows shows that versatility. Let's pivot to the San Diego a little bit, which you you referenced with uh, Dick Mandela getting the win with Royal Ship, a horse who's I'll admit to you, Gary, I've I've had trouble figuring this horse out. I, I I tend to I tend to zig when he zags and and vice versa. But certainly on his best day, incredibly talented animal. Well, yeah. In fact, when when you look at it after the race, you're like, you know, how did I miss this horse? But that's <laughs> way the horse has sort of been been in his races, and he and he and he finally put it together or put it together again uh, in a big race with a very very salty field. Um, in fact, the win was so impressive, I thought. Huh, maybe we'll have a pretty good uh, Pacific Classic after all, and, and some really top horses to go after Flightline. 
it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, you'd certainly think Royal Ship putting up a figure that matched, you know, the best work that he was doing back in uh, the spring of, of 21. No reason they wouldn't go forward. And you would think, given the hands that he's in, that he might even have another another forward move. Where do you where do you stand on Flightline and, and his ability to get the 10 furlongs? What's your what's your gut on that? Well, well, I will say, I, I think if 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 we were we recall, there was a horse named Cigar that ran in the Pacific Classic, <laughs> and uh, that horse, who was a super horse, lost to a Richard Mandela horse. Dare and go, dare and go. Um, so I, uh, Flightline is 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 on another level, um, and it's amazing to watch. Uh, he worked from the gate the other morning, and uh, the entire track was there uh, watching it. And uh, I've learned over the years not to play the can he or can't he or can't she you know, get the distance. Uh, this is an amazing horse, and I'm, it's just going to be fun to watch. I'm hoping that he, that he does. Um, I would imagine that he can. Um, is I respect uh, the Hironis family and John Sandler very much. Um, I can't imagine if they didn't think he could get the distance, they would even entertain it. They have a tremendous horse, and there are a lot of top races out there. Um, I know the, the Pacific Classic is near and dear to both of their hearts, um, and so they always like to win it. Uh, I can't imagine them putting this horse in the race if they didn't have a good faith belief that he could, and uh, that's that's good enough for me. We'll see how it plays out in a few weeks' time. Gary, thank you so much for your time. Folks looking to get involved, in themoneypodcast.com slash LRF. That's the simplest way to get there. You can also navigate from the Del Mar website. We'll have more coverage of this event later in the week. This LRF Cares contest, really hoping it does spectacularly well and appreciate your time today. Awesome, Pete. Thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to seeing many of your audience listeners uh, in the contest over the weekend. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'd like to thank Gary Fenton and Nick Tamaro for being the guests today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. And I also want to remind you that we're going to do something special with Live at the Brentwood this week. We're going to be going live at 11 a.m., a live stream, 11 a.m. Saturday morning. We're pivoting to Saturday to uh, see if that's any more fun and we get any more uh, uh, traction. Not that the Sunday shows have done bad, but for the big Whitney day, we're going to try that out. Lots of great coverage, extra coverage of the Hambletonian, the harness racing coming up. We're going to have some cross promotion. There's a cross a flat and harness pick five. We'll have Edison Hatter on the late week show to talk about that. Also a bet makers, a Delphi racing club, little red feather cares really, really appreciate all of, uh, of their support in letting you bring the show to us as well as our founding partners, thoroughbred retirement foundation. You know all about them. trfinc.org slash players. That is the link to give to them and 10 Strike Racing. We'll give them a special shout out. We talked a ton about them on today's show. But as we say around here, we always like to root for the purple and black, even if it's sometimes keying them second in the exacta. Very successful strategy. Breeders' Cup. I should shout them out as well. We told you before, you can watch that uh, win in your in coverage on NBC 5 o'clock on Saturday. Most of all, though, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. If you want to support us more, get extra content. If you like our act, in the moneypodcast.com slash plus. That's our little Patreon-esque service. 
that you'll get a bunch of extra stuff from, or you can just sign up for our free email. That's helpful to us as well. And that's a great way to get all the content in one place in the moneypodcast.com slash email. If you can't do those things and you still want to help out, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a nice five-star review. That's nice too. YouTube channel as well. Another thing you can do if you're in such a mood to help us out. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. Should get him back on later this week with any luck at all. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos. 